So let's start in the Book of Mormon. Turn with me to Jacob chapter 1. He uses a phrase in the Book of Mormon that I think is fascinating, and, and I think this is probably one of the reasons I'm so fascinated with his seven statements from the cross. Jacob chapter 1, verse 8. He invited us to... You see this odd phrase? Oh, I lost it. All right, let me pull him back up. View his death. That's an interesting phrase, right? Wherefore, we would that to God that we could persuade all men not to repel against God and to provoke him in anger, but that all men would believe, his, believe in Christ. And look at that phrase. I wish we could get everyone to view his death and suffer his cross. And I think that's what we're going to get. Do you see the symbolism of suffer his cross and view his death and bear the shame of the world? I, that fascinates me, that phrase, view his death. If I knew nothing about Christ, but I just had the seven statements he uttered from the cross, it would be enough to teach sermons about how to live. So I'm going to use these seven statements as mirrors to hold up and say, do I live like he died? Does that statement guide my life? So let's start. Let's put them in as close we can alphabetical order as possible. There's three in John, three in Luke, one in Matthew and Mark. And we'll use Matthews more than anything else. Now, if you, I'm going to use the gospel library. If you have never used... Um, tags. If you've never learned how to tag, let me just take two seconds and show you. This is a marvelous thing to tag. So when you go to the very beginning of the, library, the gospel library and you go here, it has this option to tag. The advantage of a tag is it's kind of a theme. So I have a tag. If you go to my tags, you'll see that I have a tag called um, statements from the cross. I'm curious, how many tags do you have? Oh, a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of tags. Uh, where is it? Statements from the cross. So I have a tag. I've created a tag called statements from the cross. So every time I found a statement from the cross, I applied that tag. Now I can open up that one tag, statements from the cross, and there they all are. It's an easy way to kind of keep a theme together. So, you know, for example, you can kind of see some of my tags. Um, here's kind of a fun one. Mistakes in the Book of Mormon. Every time, I guarantee, I, I have evidence that they were chiseling on gold plates. These are kind of fun. Every time I find one, I mark it and I just laugh. Look at some of these, ready? And thus we see that when these Lamanites were brought to believe and to know the truth, they were firm and would suffer even unto death rather than commit sin. And thus we see that they buried their weapons of peace. Ah, crap, that's not what I meant to say. Or they buried their weapons of war for peace. No one buries a weapon of peace. That's a typo. It sounds deep. And good job, Mormon, chiseling it out to make it look good. Clearly, he's chiseling on plates and can't just scratch it out, right? Or here's kind of a fun one. While on the other hand, there was now and then a man fell among the Nephites. By their swords and the loss of blood, they being shielded from the more vital parts of their body. That doesn't make sense. The more vital parts of their body being shielded from the strokes of the Lamanites by their breastplates and their arm shields. Clearly, that was a human error. Anyway, so tags are a powerful way to kind of put all the things in all the scriptures that have to do with that theme. So just kind of wanted to just mention that. So I have a tag called Statements from the Cross. And the, the nice thing about the Gospel Library is I can order these. I can just hit this button right here and hit Edit and see how I can order them. So I have put them in the order that I think chronologically they happened so that as soon as I open up this list, 
boom, I've got the seven statements in order. Do you see the, the, power, the advantage of tags? If you've never used a tag, I just wanted to mention that. Okay, so we've got three in Luke, three in John, one in Matthew. The first one is technically not while he's on the cross. One is while he's being nailed to the cross. The first statement is in Luke 22, verse 34. What did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't fully understand what they're doing. Now, make that a mirror. Are you ever justified in withholding forgiveness? No matter what anyone does to you, when you read that statement. When they were pounding nails through his hands, he had the sense to say what? They don't fully understand what they're doing. They're just doing their job. They are Roman soldiers and this is their job. Father, forgive them. That becomes a powerful mirror for me to use. So let's suppose someone did something horrible to me. Am I justified in hating them and being angry at them if I were to view his death? Do you see what he just did? That statement alone is a powerful way to live my life. Someone cut me off on the road. What's my instinct? You idiot. Here's the funny thing, though. Have you ever cut someone else off? Have you ever been the one that cut someone else off? Were you the idiot that you thought they were when they cut you off? No, because why? Oh, I didn't mean to. Sorry, didn't mean to. Forgive me. And yet when they cut me off, they're a horrible jerk. Do you see the irony? So Jesus taught me to pause and say, if I wasn't the jerk when I cut someone else off, maybe I shouldn't think they're the jerk when they cut me off. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you see how, to, how that simple statement would guide my life? That's a powerful thing to remember. Statement number one, Father, forgive them. Abby. And the fact that, yeah, the fact that I don't even know whether they meant to or not, why not give them the benefit of doubt? Why not have that forgiving attitude? What if every time anyone did something against me, my attitude was, Father, forgive them, they don't understand. How would my life be different if I just did that one little thing that Jesus taught me on the cross? Let's do another one. Probably the second, somewhere towards the beginning of this, his mother was sitting there weeping at the death of her son. Now, how much agony is he in? How much agony is he going through? And he looks out and he sees his mother in agony herself. Now, comparative, whose agony is greater? And it doesn't even compare, right? Her agony at losing her son and the agony he was dealing with. And yet, what was his focus? His pain or hers? Do you see the lesson? A powerful lesson. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. In other words, we take care of my mom. In his agony, who was he concerned about? Now, tell me what you do when you're in pain. We can all admit it. I freely admit it. What's natural reaction? What's natural for you and I to do when I'm hurting? We focus on me and we throw a little pity party and all of you, you are not bothered enough. All of you need to be more bothered that I'm in pain. Can I be more of your focus? 
And it's silly that we do that when the greatest pain that ever existed was on him and his focus was on someone else. If I hold that up as a mirror to live my life, if I was more focused on other people than on myself, how would I live my life? Powerful lesson. Son, behold thy mother. John, take care of my mom because I'm no longer going to be around to do so. And who else was he concerned about? Tell me another person he was concerned about. Even in his agony, he was concerned about, can you name the other person he was concerned about? One of the thieves. One of the thieves on the cross. Sorry, let me get there. Let's read it. Luke chapter 23, back to Luke. Let's read this whole story. Starting in verse 29. So he's crucified between two thieves. One of them says to Jesus, he railed on him saying, if thou be the, the Christ, save thyself and us. If you're the Christ, if you're the Christ. That's a dagger, right? If you're the Christ, save thyself and us too. The other thief answered him, rebuking him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. He said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest unto thy kingdom. And Jesus said, statement number three, Verily I say unto thee, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. What do you think he was saying? What do you think he meant by that? I don't think the guy was going to paradise, do you? <laughs> I don't think he was headed to paradise. So what did I think the Savior was saying what? I'll come find you. Watch for me where we're going. Tell me what's on his mind. In his agony, what's on his mind? Still going after the one. He's still going after the salvation of the one. How many people were waiting for him in paradise? And he said what? I'm coming to find you. Do you think he did? I think he did. He is still concerned about the one and their salvation. In his agony, he doesn't throw a pity party. He is still concerned about the welfare of his mom and the salvation of a thief. Do you see who he is? I love that one. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. All right, let's get to my favorite one. The one that means the most to me. Um, oh, I put them out of order. Okay, I was showing another group how to put them in order and I never put it back. I think this one was somewhere in the middle. Jesus utters two words. I thirst. And to me, this is one of the most significant things he said, because I think this one's symbolic. He said, I thirst. Now tell me what they did when he said, I thirst. What did they do? Nick, what do they do? They take a sponge, dip it in vinegar and put it to his lips. Now, let me see if I can show you why that's so symbolic. In, G in Gethsemane, remember when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, he said, Father, if thou be willing, let this cup. Jesus likens the atonement to a cup that he had to drink. He had to drink the cup. 
Now, what does he call that cup? Think other scriptures, Doctrine and Covenants. What does Jesus call the cup that contains the atonement? The bitter cup. There's several scriptures where he refers to it as the bitter cup. Now, do you believe that Jesus drank the bitter cup? What is the symbolic evidence that he drank all of it? He drained it to the dregs. Do you see it? When he said, I thirst, what did they put to his lips? Which is very? Tell me what Jesus died. As he died, what was on his lips? Bitter. Symbolically suggesting what? Tell me what that symbolism says. He finished the cup. He died with vinegar dripping from his lips. And to me that says he drank the cup. Now, in beautiful symbolism, what is handed to you every single week at sacrament meeting? A cup. Are there a few things in that cup that you would rather not do? Are there a few things in that cup that you've been resisting? You've kind of pushed away from. I'm not going to do that, Lord. Is the Spirit whispering to you there's something that the Lord wants you to do and you are not willing to do it? You've pushed it outside. And so here comes the mirror. Ready? Jesus drank his cup. And it was painful for him. And it consumed him and it killed him. And now there are some things he's asking you to drink. Will you drink your cup? Will you do the things he has asked you to do and finish all the way to the bottom of the cup? I love that. The symbolism of vinegar dripping from his lips when he died means the world to me. And I think about that every time he hands me a cup. Will I drink everything in that cup? Will I drink it to the very bottom like he did? Thoughts, comments? Do you see the symbolism? I thirst. Anything you want to add? Okay. At some point, so Jesus was probably crucified around 9 a.m. From 9 to noon, he hung with all the gawkers and everyone watching. Now, one of the things I think we need to point out is something he didn't say. Perhaps one of the great lessons of my life is to see what he didn't say from the cross. Let me just point out one significant thing he did not say. Ready? Someone read this one. This one's in Luke 23, 35 through 37. Anyone want to read? Nick, you got it. Luke 23, 35 through 37. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers uh, also with them declared him, saying, He loved others. Let him, say, uh, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And? And? No, what's, what's, what's not there? Tell me what he didn't say. He didn't rebuke them back. Jesus knew what to say and what not to say. Are there some people in your life that you should just be silent? But you can't resist. Have you ever watched people on social media? Have you ever watched people on social media not be able to resist and they say something and then they end up regretting what they said? Jesus had the wisdom to say, you know what? The best thing for me to do is to just not say anything. They were mocking him. They were ridiculing him. And what did he say? Nothing. I don't need to respond. I think there's great wisdom in that. But he's crucified at nine. From nine to 12, all of this happens. 
from 12 to 3, the darkness rolled in and no one could see anything. No one could watch. For three hours while he hang on the cross, there was a thick darkness in Jerusalem as also in America. That was symbolic because we believe that all of the agony of Gethsemane was returning. He not only suffered in the garden, but he suffered while on the cross. All those agonies returned. Now, in the doctrine of the atonement, he had to be alone. He had to be infinitely without God. He he got kicked out of God's full presence. Infinitely alone infinitely away from the Father. The Father completely withdrew from Him as if He failed. I wonder if Jesus concluded that He had failed and that the Father was finding another Messiah. Completely abandoned. It was in that moment that we get our sixth statement from the cross. And this is the one from Matthew, Matthew and Luke, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Tell me what he does. Rising up on the nails through his feet, he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet, Does he quit? He was literally forsaken by God. And did he quit? Now, do you see the lesson? In a rebuke to every single person out here who, when they felt forsaken, walked away from God. How many people feel forsaken by the church, forsaken by God, and they walk away? Here is a man that was literally fully forsaken by God, completely, in every sense of the way. God turned his back on his son. And yet, he finished. The very fact that one of the upcoming statements is, it is finished, comes back to this statement to say, are you among those who walk away from God because you perceive that you are abandoned by him? Or do you shake your fist and say, oh God, where art thou? Carest thou not that we perish? How many people walk away from his, his church because they're offended? Because someone said something and they feel forsaken or offended. Jesus was the ultimate offended. And he still, he still finished. That's astounding. In his perspective, he had been completely forsaken. And he still finished. Anyone ever read the Screwtape Letters? C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Screwtape Letters. It's kind of reverse psychology. It's a master devil training an apprentice devil on how to destroy a Christian. So it's advice on how to destroy a Christian. The master devil in the middle of this book says something so profound. Uh, Here it is. So the master devil says to the apprentice devil, our cause is never, meaning the cause of evil, our cause, the cause of evil, is never more in danger than when a human, no more desiring but still intending to do God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished 
asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Who did that? Who looked around and saw a universe in which he was completely forsaken and still finished? You see with the accomplishment? Now there's the mirror. Am I the kind of person who's going to walk away because I feel forsaken? Because the bishop made me feel forsaken or someone in my ward or maybe someone in my family or maybe God himself. Maybe I'm in pain and I feel forsaken. Are you going to walk away? Because Jesus, there's the, there's the statement. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We're all going to have those moments, right? Every one of us will have our liberty jail. We'll all have those moments where God's presence seems to be vanished. Remember that one. Remember that one. The next one is significant. I like to put these together. This may have come earlier, but I really like to put those together because this one clearly comes after number five. Back to John, number five on our list, three words. John 19, 28, nope, sorry, John 19, 30. He says, It is finished. Now, how an infinite pain comes to an end, I don't fully understand. I'm just going to throw this out there. I do not understand how he could say that. Because as my mortal brain understands infinity, how long does it take to pay an infinite guilt? I don't understand how an infinite pain comes to an end. But I trust that when he said it is finished, it was finished. Now, a couple thoughts. Tell me what this means about your pain. If the greatest of all pains came to an end, tell me what those three statements say. Someday, what's, someday what will you be able to say of your pain? This is a promise. This is a promise to everyone who suffers. Everyone in pain. Those three words should be the biggest beacon of hope for anyone who suffered. Because if his greatest of all pain ended, what does that mean? Yours will too. If he was able to say, it's done, it's finished, it's over. You will be able to say, it's done, it's over, it is finished. No mortal pain was greater than his. If his ended, yours will end. And you can take comfort in those words. I can't wait to say, it's finished. I'm done. The other way to look at that is when does Jesus die? When does he finally give up the ghost? when he was done. Now, I understand there's a time and a place to ask to be released. I don't mean to be condemning of anyone who asks to be released. And I know that sometimes missionaries need to come home early. My daughter did for a very good reason. And I don't mean to demean that in any way. But what should be my attitude when I go on a mission and receive a calling or any task from him? What should be my goal? I want to say of this assignment, like he said of his assignment, is finished. I am going to finish what he asked. And that goes right along with the last one, number seven. What's the last thing he said? Before, actually, probably said it before this one. I'm sure this one was the last one or somehow... 
Maybe they were connected somehow. I threw my marker at you, Abby, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. It, don't be offended and leave, okay? Because I threw my marker at you. And speaking of completing the assignment, what did he say last? Probably last, I think this is probably, it's done. Therefore, this one's back in Luke 23. Luke 23, 46. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Tell me what he was doing. How do you read that? How do you read that statement? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It seems to me he was offering the Father the completed offering. He says, I've finished it. I've tied it up into a bowl, and Father, here's my offering. Those of you who came home from a mission, didn't you have an accountability with Lord, the Lord at the end? Wasn't there a moment at the end of your mission where you had to say, Lord, here's what I did. Here's my accounting. And I vowed, before I left on my mission, I vowed, I, I, I was in the temple, before my mission. And I said, Lord, in two years, I will come back to this temple and I will have an accounting. And I want to say, I commend my mission. Here is what I did for you, Lord. Here is what I, I want to do that someday when I die. Someday when I die, I want to take my life with all the imperfections and all the mistakes I made, but all the repentance and everything that I learned and what I became. And I want to say, Lord, I commend my life. That's my goal. I want to say that at the end of my life and say, here's the life that I lived. Will you accept it? Did I, did I please thee? I commend my life. I think that's the spirit of what he's trying to say. Basically, said what I was going to say. It's kind of just like you having to go up to God and just saying, like, with like no shame, just like, this is what I did, and just lay it all out. Yep. Let me show this to you in Scripture. I love the very end of Enos. Go to the last verse of Enos. I want, now, I don't believe, per, I, and, let me say that again, perfection is not required. No life is perfect. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be clean. There's a big difference. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be clean. I love the very end of Enos. I don't think Enos was perfect. I think Enos made many mistakes like all mortals do, but he was able to the end of, at the end of his life say the following. Anyone want to read this? Yeah, 27. Enos 1, 27. This is commending my life unto God. And I see the, the prince of my rest, which is with my redeemer, for I know that in him I shall rest, and I rejoice in the day when my Lord shall be, shall put on immortality, and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure, and he will say unto me, Come unto me, be blessed. There's a place prepared for you in the mansions of my father. Tell me what Enos knew. Tell me what Enos knew. My life, my offering, though I haven't been perfect and I've made lots of mistakes, isn't this, guy, isn't this the same guy that started the chapter praying for what? A forgiveness of his sins. Isn't Enos saying, I have lived a life commendable to God. Now that's my goal. I think about this statement all the time and I want to be able to say to my children, your dad lived a commendable life. And I hope that you can commend your dad's life unto God. Into thy hands, I commend my, my spirit. I'm coming. Was my offering acceptable? Into thy hands, I commend my spirit. Those are the seven.
Thoughts? Oh, I just, I noticed um, when I clicked on commend, it kind of, it's linked to commitment. Yeah. And so I just think that connects six and seven very well. Do you see, I love that tie. I love this tie because even though he was forsaken, he didn't quit, he finished. And when he was finished, his commitment was over. I just think they're all kind of connected. He finished the cup. He died with vinegar dripping from his lips. I want to die with vinegar dripping from my lips because I drank the cup. And I want to commend my spirit unto him. Thank you. Please, Braylon. So we're talking about commitment and um, I wanted to relate it back to you. There's this heart condition called POTS, and um, you can't really regulate your heart rate or your blood volume if you don't have enough salt in your system. So you literally have to drink like electrolyte packets in the morning and keep water in your system consistently to have a steady heart rate and it just kind of tied it back to Christ's heart for me is that in order for his heart to be healthy he had to drink it because if he didn't have that in his system um, his heart would have failed him before he even got to the car. That is powerful. Beautiful example. He drank it or else his heart would have not made it. I love the phrase, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Anyone know what he says after that? I give unto men weakness. Your weakness is a gift. It's a gift. Ponder that. That's beautiful. Thank you. Anyone else? Do you see why I wanted to cover? Just so powerful to hold up as standards of living. If all you knew from him was the seven statements he made from the cross, it would teach me a tremendous lesson about him and how to live. Um, I was thinking about the first one because on our mission ones, we visited this house, we knocked on the door, and we had a horrible experience. This lady was saying the meanest things to us probably the worst moment of my mission. No one had ever treated me like that before. And my first instinct and thought was to just be so mad at her and so angry and say the meanest things about her as well in my head, right? I wasn't gonna say to her face. I was a missionary. But, um, and I was on exchanges with this sister, you know, and I wanted to be an example to her, but I was just so angry. And we went back to the apartment so she could use the, the restroom. And as we were there, I just had this prompting saying, pray for her. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to pray for that lady. And again, the same prompting, pray for her. And again, I said, no. And the third time, I felt like I can't pray for her. So I knelt down in the bathroom because I was in the bathroom too. And, and I prayed for that lady. And I remembered when Christ forgave those who did the meanest things to him as well. So I asked Heavenly Father to forgive her. And that one day when the missionaries came again, she she would be nicer, but that God would forgive her for me. Yeah. And after I said that, I had no bad thoughts anymore. And I loved that lady. And after that, I just always thought about the Savior forgiving people and asking for their forgiveness. There it is. View his death. Beautiful. One statement from the cross changed my life. That's beautiful. I just wanted to say... Um, I'm grateful that he drank the bitter cup because we don't have to. Yeah. And you mentioned the sacrament and that, that cup of water, it's not bitter. It's water is good, especially on fast Sunday. It's a great little drink of water. <laughs> and I think the water that he asked us to drink, the cup that we drink, it's not bitter. It's he not. Drank the bitter cup. Yeah. He just asked that we, we follow him. Yep. Do what he did. Yep. Comparatively speaking, it is not at all bitter. But I want to drink my cup as faithful as he drank his. Joy. Um, I just have in my mind that in Jesus the Christ, it talks about how Christ, this is about number six, I think. 
And it's like, because he was the son of God, he had power over it. So he couldn't end with, um, he, his life couldn't be taken until he laid it out. Yep. So he, like, he would have, no one took his life. He gave it to us. Yep. And he, now, did he have an off switch? Could he have ended all the pain by choosing death at any moment? He didn't. I love that verse. What is it? John 10? I think it's John 10. Verse 18. No man taketh it from... Well, we've got to read 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. How relieving was it for him to say, I can now play the, the mortal card and end my life. Okay, since we're here, let's just, can I just jump, let's just run. I know this was going to be last on our list, but Matthew chapter 27, we just, let me just throw this in very briefly. Matthew 27, as soon as he gives up the ghost and he dies, two things happen that are so significant. Okay, verse 50, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. So as soon as he dies, two things rip. Two things rip. Tell me what the two things are that ripped in verse 51. First of all, the veil of the temple was ripped. As soon as he's dead, the veil of the temple rips. Now, that one's symbolic because in the Old Testament, how many people could go into the Holy of Holies? One person, high priest, one day a year. One person, one day a year, symbolic of Jesus. So on his own, who can make it back to Heavenly Father's presence? How many people on their own can enter the Father's presence? Only him. So he would carry us in. He carried the 12 tribes of, of Israel in. But the high priest was the only person who could go through the veil into the Father's presence. But now that the atonement is complete, how many people can go into the Father's presence? So do you see the symbolism? As soon as the atonement is complete, the veil rips as a symbol that everyone can now enter the Father's presence. And what's the other thing that rips? The earth rips. What's the symbolism? All those dead bodies cannot be held back. He ripped the earth open and allowed the spirits to come out as resurrected beings. You see the symbolism of those two? So powerful that as soon as he gives up the ghost, the veil, the veil rips the earth rips, and the graves were opened. Okay, let's very quickly, can we just do this one? Uh, this will probably have to end here, but let's do this one. You need to turn, now, especially those of you who have been endowed, if we don't turn to Isaiah, you're going to look at me like I'm doing something very wrong. Okay, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22, Old Testament. Now, here's the history. Um, Hezekiah is the king of Judah. He has a steward that's in charge of his house, kind of secretary of state type person, uh, chief of staff, so to speak. And his name was Shebna. Shebna is a horrible person and he's been letting, he's been taking bribes to get people in to see the king. And so Shebna is being fired. Isaiah is going in to, to fire Shebna. And they're going to hire in Shebna's place a man by the name of um, Eli Eliakim. Eliakim is going to take Shebna's place, and he's telling King Hezekiah. Isaiah is telling Hezekiah that you can trust Eliakim. You can trust him with your money. You can trust him with your kingdom. 
you can trust Eliakim. Now, do you see the symbolism? Who is it that lets people in to see the king? Eliakim now has power to let people in to see the king. Who is he a symbol of? Jesus now has the power to let you in to see the king. Now, in, in commending, sorry, in commending Eliakim to Hezekiah, Isaiah says, sorry, let me jump there. In commend, so there's Shebna, verse 15, Shebna's being fired. Verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Verse 21, I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government to his hands. The key of David, the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulders, and he shall open and none shall shut. Do you see how he's speaking of Jesus and Eliakim at the same time? Jesus has the key of David to allow you to go see the king. Now, because Eliakim is someone you can trust, what does Isaiah tell Hezekiah? I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. You can trust him. He is a nail in a sure place. Now, I'm going to quote from Elder Holland in his recent book, Titles of Christ. Actually, maybe we'll read it together. How's that? So then you don't think I'm doing anything inappropriate. <laughs> I just want to make sure you don't look at me like, uh, what's it called? In thy name? In thy name, right? Uh, come on. Okay, it's not called In Thy Name. What's Elder Holland's new book called? Why can't I see it? The Names? Oh my goodness, why can't I see it? Witness for His Name. Oh my goodness. All right, nail in a sure place. Ready? Um, last sentence. Elder Holland. When the Roman soldiers drove their four and one half inch nail crucifixion spikes into their victim's flesh. They did so first in the open palm. Now, where would you crucify me if you wanted to hurt me? If you wanted to cause me pain, where would you nail me? In my palm. That was for anguish. But the problem with nailing me in my palms is what? It's just going to rip right out. In other words, this weight couldn't carry the burden placed upon it, and it would rip. Some people are like that. Some people cannot carry the burden placed upon them, and they rip. But after they, they nailed him in the, the palm, but the weight of the body might tear the flesh, but because the weight of the body might tear the flesh and not sustain the burden to be carried, they also drove nails into the wrist down in the nexus of the bones and sinews that would not tear no matter what the weight. Thus, the nail in the wrist was the nail in the sure place. What weight was laid on Christ on that cross? How heavy a weight was laid on Christ on that cross? And did he hold up the weight? He is a nail in a sure place. I can lay on him any burden. I can lay on him the burden of my sins. I can lay on him the burden of my sorrows, my pain. And what will he do? He will hold it. He is the only person who will hold all the weight that I lay on him. He is a nail in a sure place. Now, those of you who've been to sacred places know that what he then does is he twists that around and asks you to be a nail in a sure place.
can he lay on you his burden and you will hold it will you faithfully hold his burden Jesus and I covenant to be for each other a nail in a sure place now the greatest lesson I have been taught about how to be a husband is the reality that there's only one other person I covenant like that. There is only one other person I hold like that. Who is it? My spouse. If you want to know what the covenant of marriage is, it's that symbol. What am I supposed to be for her? A nail in a sure place. That she can lay on me all her hopes, all her dreams, and I will hold them. And I won't rip. That is the greatest sermon I have ever been taught on how to be a husband. And it came from his crucifixion. Will you be a nail in a sure place for him? If you will, you can enter his presence. That's powerful doctrine, powerful symbols. Of him I bear solemn testimony that he is a nail in a sure place. And he finished. He died with vinegar dripping from his lips because he finished. May we commend our lives to him because we have finished. Is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.